Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. My guest today, Fashakir, he actually used to be my boss uh, a long time ago when he was editor-in-chief of Think Progress, and I wrote a blog there. Um, since that time, he's gone on to do many things. He worked for Harry Reid when he was a uh, Senate leader for the Democrats, then he worked for Bernie Sanders, uh, then he became Bernie's campaign manager. Now he's got a new project that's called More Perfect Union, which is trying to do um, media that elevates, I think, working class voices, build a kind of progressive case on economics. We had a really interesting conversation about Bernie Sanders, about the left, about the media, um, about identity and, and economics. Um, that's just, I don't know, he's a really smart guy who I've known for a long time. I've wanted to have him on the show for a while to sort of lay out where he thinks. Um, and we got into a lot of good stuff. I think, uh, I hope this is going to change everybody's mind about a lot of things and get everyone ready uh, to wage class warfare. <laughs> Another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Faz Shakir, is a chief political advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, who you may have heard of. Um, he's also the founder of a cool new project called More Perfect Union uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, but so, Faz, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. How's it going? All right. I'm surviving COVID. You too, hopefully. <laughs> yes, we have, we're have. we making it light at the end of the tunnel, I feel like, is here. Uh, so, I mean, I wanted to ask you, you, you are a, a top advisor to Senator Sanders. You were the manager of his 2020 um, campaign. So, I'll just be blunt. Would Bernie have won? Uh, yes, I think he would have. And I think, you know, quite frankly, a lot of Democrats, I think, could have and may have won. Obviously, there's a lot of things that would have been contingent upon how they did that. But the the path for Bernie would have been different and interesting and compelling, quite frankly, around voters who historically have not voted for Democrats potentially swinging to him. I think he would have been strong in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, some of the key states that you would needed. I don't know how strong in like, you know, in Arizona, but I think you, he had strong support with Latinos. That was clear. And so for some of those states, you know, you could imagine him doing quite well, but in my mind, it would have changed the nature of the entire race. Uh, I think what you had with Biden, of course, was a path of return to normalcy, a, a Democrat you know has been in the White House. And if you just wanted to get rid of Trump, uh, there was a compelling case that Biden was um, a comfortable choice. And I think that was always his case. With Bernie, you are going to actually end up having a very strong vision debate. 
of in this country. What kind of government do you want? What kind of government support and programs, systems do you want? What kind of economy do you want? That I think would have just forced Donald Trump into some very difficult conversations that he ended up, you know, not really having to have. And, you know, we can get into that, but he basically, you know, was was a loony loony tunes during the course of that campaign, and um, and kind of cost himself the election. But he didn't really have to engage too deeply in a, a policy discourse, which you could argue was a fine enough strategy from the from the Biden side, which was let let the guy dig his own hole, right? <laughs> let him dig his own hole, and then and we can kind of uh, win the support that we need. But I, I think we would have engaged obviously in a much more aggressive you know, philosophical debate over what kind of country you want. And I do think, you know, one of the most sort of striking differences is in terms of um, Trump always tries to portray himself and and not just Trump, right? I mean, Republicans going forward as sort of the party of like normal people, right? Even as like Trump is weird, that like real Americans, you know, they're they're for us. Uh, And then Biden kind of counters that with his own version of normalcy, right? Whereas Sanders, I think, tries to say that there is a different dividing line in America from the one that Trump draws, right? Correct. Yes. And if it goes back to his run in 2015, 2016, uh, Bernie's run, and it was really at that time, I thought, uh, trying to speak to a silent pain and suffering felt by millions of Americans that wasn't being heard, particularly following the Great Recession when people thought, okay, well, the economy is going well. He's like, what? No, no, no. It's not going well. There's millions of people out there who are hurting. And let me speak to them and then offer an agenda that really kind of motivates and inspires them to want to get out uh, in a way that they haven't gotten out before. And then you flash forward five years later and we're in the midst of COVID, that silent pain and suffering he had been talking about before was smack dab right in your face. It was obvious and it was clear to everybody, the inequalities in our healthcare system, inequalities, our education system, and down the line, right? Uh, and who was, who was benefiting, who wasn't. So I think you could have imagined during COVID, I mean, Bernie would have been really running around saying, all of these things that I have been talking about right here, every day, we are experiencing this injustice in our system and, and really forcing Donald Trump to have to own some of the BS that he had spouted about pop, you know, the populist rhetoric of I'm going to take on the pharmaceutical companies, I'm going to cut fair trade deals, I'm going to, you know, stand up to big, uh, big banks and big corporations like, you know, Goldman Sachs. We we were reveling in the idea it was going to be a fight over corporate socialism, socialism for the rich versus democratic socialism, right, for the people. And I think it would have been kind of an compelling and interesting fight over who does the government support. In these difficult times, and COVID would have obviously been very revelatory, right? About that, and and you get into it, mad by the end of it when he was fighting for direct payments, where he put he put Trump on the spot, right? He he was. If you look at like what happened with direct payments, it was Bernie Sanders injecting this at a time when Mark Warner and Joe Manchin were cutting deals with Republicans that didn't have a dime for direct payments. Bernie puts it in fights for it, gets it. And then Donald Trump has to react and say, oh, well, I, I'm, I'm for more. I'm for more. Right. And and so I think that what is what that taste right there and that like what whatever one month at the end of that election cycle would have given you a taste of, I think, what the entire campaign would have been about. So I think, you know, there's been a sort of fascinating thing happening in the policy universe in which those direct payments, I think, like really captured people's imagination. And we've seen that across, you know, a, a number of different legislative battles uh, up to uh, the the rescue plan, which includes the, the, the $1,400 direct payments, which are, you know, meant to add to 600 and equal 2000. Um, but obviously, like that isn't the majority of the money 
that was in that kind of plan. And I mean, do you think is is there something to be said for in the future thinking more about money straight into people's pockets? Like, like what? Why did why did people like that so much? The 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 most important element in my mind, Matt, and I obviously want to hear your thoughts on it too, is that we weren't talking just about unemployment benefits, which historically. Democrats tend to talk about, which is people who have lost a job and are suffering out there. When you're talking about direct payments, you're talking about working class people as well. You're saying you have a job, you're out there, you know, trying to struggle to make it. So you're not on the unemployment line. So you don't have to get unemployment benefits. We, we see you. You're, you're at Kroger's trying to bag groceries. We see you. We see, we see you trying to drive Uber and, and, and make a life for yourself, but you are barely getting by. And maybe not even, right? You're sinking in debt. And this direct payments in some ways is the easiest policy solution to all of the other fundamental problems that people are experiencing in their lives, whether it's medical debt, credit card debt, uh, you know, being swallowed by an economic system that is very tilted against people. You know, you're getting overdraft charges because you don't have enough money in your account. It's easy to overlook that. And one of the easiest policy solutions, man, is, okay, here, here's... Here's $5,600 for a family of four. You know, obviously we would have loved Medicare for all. It would resolve many healthcare issues, but at least it's a temporary patch. Here's $5,600. That'll help get you through some period of time. And I think that it also does make the case if lawmakers are not going to move to a much more aggressive safety net that, that, that I would like to see in this country, that Senator Sanders would like to see in this country, then at least with recurring monthly payments, you can at least help people get through the difficulties that they have in a very unjust and unequal economic system. You know, I always thought watching that kind of cash debate play out, it was interesting. It was, you know, people on the left um, got very, you know, engaged with that kind of fight. But I I feel like I could imagine a future in which Republicans start using that as a counter to progressive ideas, right? Like in another context, you think of public schools is a progressive idea. Then like charter schools is a more right-wing idea. Vouchers is a further right-wing idea than that. And just be like, hey, we should just not have a public school system. And then we could cut a check for X dollars to every single person who lives in the city. Like you would say that that's like a very right-wing idea, right? Yeah, that's always been the concern around UBI, right? Is is, is like, we're, we'd be supportive of a UBI, but it can't come at the cost of a, 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 an important safety net in which people have decent healthcare, decent education. And, and so I, I am 100% with you, Matt, that it, it's not, it can't be an either or. And that's why, you know, I, I felt strongly one of the pieces that Senator Sanders often talks about is free tuition in public colleges and universities. We've gotten so, so accustomed that K through 12 education, it's all, it's provided for you, right? I can go to a public school, but then some Somehow we get to higher education. Whoa, whoa, that that seems that seems nuts. Why would you you, you have to pay for that, right? Like, right. But, but why? <laughs> well, then, I mean, you know, I, so obviously, like that's that's not like the Sanders solution. It's not is not the left solution, right? Because you're comfortable with just taxes being higher. You can you can do both. But I, I did think it was noteworthy. You know, Alaska has sort of had a kind of UBI for a long time because uh, it's something they do with their with their oil money. Right. And then when oil prices went down in 2014, 2015, you know, they were going to have trouble sort of making that dividend payment that people got used to. And what the Republicans put on the table was huge cuts to higher education to, you know, sort of offset the loss of, of oil revenue there. And, you know, 
Alaska politics is kind of unique and in a whole lot of different ways. Uh, but, you know, it was became a, a different kind of struggle, right, in which it, it pitted Democrats as standing for, you know, the interests of these educational institutions versus the Republicans who kind of just wanted to put money in your pocket. And, you know, you could say, well, OK, let's do both. Right. But like the sticking point is like people don't like to pay taxes. Yes, <laughs> that's certainly true, but you have to make the argument, uh, and I've long believed it, and you know this, that that uh, paying taxes is patriotic. In fact, I mean, we I think love the, taxes. The problem with, ta- you know, the, you know, I, I may be speaking for myself, but I do believe yeah. that taxes in general, one of the things that most Americans are concerned about is that I pay it and other people don't. Mm-hmm. That I'm, I'm, I'm the sucker here. I'm getting cheated because I'm actually paying more than Amazon is or that Google is or even their chief executives. They've got accountants, they've got lawyers, they've figured out loopholes. And I think that that fundamentally, if people felt like, hey, there's a fairness in this system that I I am being treated just as the person in the similar lot in my life. And by the way, there's a progressive taxation where people are making a hell of a lot more, 50 50 times more are paying more than I am. There would be more understanding of the value of taxation and obviously seeing government work for them, right? So that's the other element, Matt. And there's not, not to get too deeply philosophical about it, but like, right. you know, if you're if you're a working class person who's trying to pay your taxes and you're being told, hey, the government's gonna come in and provide you know green new green jobs. Well, do you believe that? If you look at it for the past two or three decades, you've seen jobs being outsourced and the government telling you, Oh, don't worry, there's gonna be another job for you. And they haven't seen it happen. So along comes a progressive movement that says, Hey, jobs are gonna be there trust us. And there isn't necessarily that trust. So you have to basically make a compelling argument based on the credibility of actually having done it with new revenues. There were investments directly in your community and you benefited. And I think that that we haven't really seen that in an aggressive FDR-like way in recent decades, but I'm hopeful that we're at the cusp of that actually coming to fruition. And that will restore faith in government, right? That, that, that thing gets you into the taxation argument too. I mean, that seems like the, the the turn right onto this this jobs plan that's being talked about in Congress now, which is I don't quite know how to put it. I mean, we, we were talking about the long term care aspect uh, on, on Tuesday's episode of the show, but it's like it's a more this is more conceptually ambitious stuff yes. than from the rescue plan. Right. Like the claim is that we are going to create like a whole electric car industry yes. and people are going to be really happy with it. Not just that you'll get some money and you'll be happy with money in your bank account, but that like things will really be transformed in some substantive way. And and I I think strongly, Matt, that and you have you know thoughts on this too, which is that I would love to see when we get into the construction element and new jobs and weatherization of homes and all those kinds of things that there are specific projects in every congressional district in America. Uh, it was a, a fundamental element of the original New Deal. And I think that actually gives you the political power of selling it too, which is that you go to any place, you take a town in Kentucky or you take a town in Mississippi and you say, see that thing around the corner, that's going to become X. You know, And the more we can turn that into something that's real, the more power you have in this argument. We, we were both, we, we worked together at, at Think Progress, and Center for American Progress uh, back in 2009 when um, the, uh, what do they call it? Uh, ARRA was happening. We, we were exposed to a lot of like official messaging uh, from, from the White House at that point. And they were so proud of like what a clean hands 
bill that was that like all the money went out according to pre-existing formulas and that like there was no extra pork going into the pockets of vulnerable house democrats who voted yes and there was no retaliation against states whose whole delegations had had gone against it and it always seemed i mean of course you don't want to say as the white house like we're using this money for political purposes but uh, but they were they were sincere you know, in a way that did not seem that smart to me. Well, it, right. And then you get into, I mean, we get into the ARRA, uh, American Relief and Reinvestment Act, combined with TARP, which you know well, and from that period of time, <laughs> oh, which was tired. like, you know, people were struggling <laughs> with losing homes. And, you know, you go back to them and say, well, listen, you know, three years time, we're going to try to build this overpass here and it'll be great. You remember the moments of cram, mortgage cram downs was a big fight at that mm-hmm. period of time. Could we actually keep people in their homes by exercising a little bit of federal authority to make it easier for people to do that? And, and you know, there's a fight against it. You remember, I mean, uh, the Treasury Department, Tim Geithner and others, they, they were against it. And as a result, I think the populist elements were missing, right? Like, and you get to where Bernie Sanders is in the Democratic Party. What is the fundamental chasm there? Right? There's just truly a populist progressive nature to it, that if, if our policy solutions should emanate from struggles of real people, and if you can't see them and feel them and hear them, then there's a problem. And I think that, that for a while, I do think, and you were, you know, some of these conversations, we go over the Treasury Department here from the White House and others, and you would struggle with like, do you actually diagnose the same pain? And often I don't think it was the case that they diagnose a different pain. Like, and they try to explain, hey, there'd be a cascading effect through the financial system if we don't help JP Morgan or whatever, right? And like, I, <laughs> I got it. But at the ground level, there's a person who's in a home and needs to stay there. What are you going to do specifically for that person? The answer was, well, you know, something's going to trickle, right? I, I, and, and I think it was a struggle for a long period of time, even for the, when they got around to a HAMP program of uh, home mortgage assistance. It was technocratic. It was very difficult to understand. It wasn't easily accessible. And I and getting into more philosophy about this, we believe in public programs that are easily accessible, that are easily understood, that e- people can digest. And I, I would like automaticity. You, you apply for one, you automatically enrolled in a bunch of others. But th- I think there's a different philosophy in a Democratic Party. And it still exists to this day. Of like, Do you see programs as generally technocratic targeted and focused on, in my mind, more of an elite problem trying to solve versus like, do you start your uh, analysis and assessment from real people struggling uh, out there in the world and build solutions off of that? So I think that's a great segue. I'm going to take a break and I want to talk to you about more Perfect Union. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So you were just talking there twice about sort of like telling people's stories, right? And, you know, obviously politicians can do that. People do that in the in the political arena. But what you've started now is a kind of a, a media venture, right? Which is, I guess, aiming to to do that, right? To sort of highlight uh, working class people talking about economic issues in a first person way, rather than in a like, I have a PhD in working class people's problems kind of way. Yes, uh, there are movements out there, right? Our Bernie Sanders campaign was not about, not me, us famously, right? Not, it was not about necessarily Bernie, but the fact that there are a lot of people out there, fast food workers, uh, people in the labor movement, trade movement, who, who are fighting actually for a lot of the same agenda that we were. And now that the campaign is over, that movement should not end, that, that those stories, those people who are still agitating for change need to be heard. And our argument, you remember it well, is that from the Bernie Sanders side, that we always felt the media didn't necessarily do a great job of telling that story of, of working people's struggles, that there's a class-based lens in politics and in the media that sometimes we all get afflicted by this, that if you live in a higher class or you are become bubbleized about being disassociated from them, that you can miss the relevancy and the emotional valence of what is going on with an Amazon worker at a warehouse. And so the thought of more perfect unions is like, get as close to that as you possibly can. There are people out there every single day who are agitating, whether they're a Kroger worker who's trying to fight for hazard pay and the company, you know, making bazillions of dollars in profit is fighting against them. Let them tell you their story. Don't, don't come in and just say, hey, I got a plan for you. Let let the solutions emanate from them. And there's a power in it. There's, there's a populist power in it. And so obviously more perfect union is constructed around this idea that if you're going to talk about student debt, direct payments, you know, hazard pay, uh, unionization in America, that it should be told by the people who are directly familiar with it and want it and can tell it in a quite frankly cogent emotional way. You know, I think an example of this that that a lot of people um, can probably reflect on is, you know, I've read a lot of articles about the COVID-19 pandemic uh, over the past year, as I think most people probably have. And some of them, which are like about science and epidemiology and stuff like that, they're so good. 
uh, because that's what like our current media is really good at doing is like talking to other kind of expert professionals. Uh, but then so many of the stories about everyday life sort of start with the presumption that, quote unquote, we have, quote unquote, all been working from home and doing all these meetings on Zoom and stuff. And like I have. Right. And like, so have you, I bet. And like yes. most of the people we went to college with. Yes. Uh, but it's just like it is not true that most people have right. been working from home or spending a lot of time on Zoom meetings like most people fall into one or another of the quote unquote essential work buckets and they've been doing stuff in person. And it's not to say that there's never been an article about those workers, but that the the implicit we of mainstream media coverage is that it is by and for sort of white collar Zoom class workers who are stressed out about the unavailability of free weights uh, so that they can work out in their home office and right. not about the kind of or about like, you know, like, how can I let my kids have a birthday party outside or is that unsafe rather than like, how do I interact in a safe way with my coworkers and my customers in my job that I have to do in person? And, you know, if I quit, I'll lose my home. You know, like those those struggles are not centered. Even the basic element of Wi-Fi, Matt. I mean, Wi-Fi itself, in terms of accessibility of the oh, here's the top five shows on Netflix and Mm -hmm. Amazon Prime to watch. For many people, we're talking about around the country, they they're not they're they're still on the cell phone coverage trying to get a COVID appointment. Guess what? They're losing out to people who have Wi-Fi and and getting a a COVID vaccine appointment. Um, That's been clear across the country. And you know, you talk about the experiential element of this and you talk about two-thirds of the American workforce over the age of 25 is non-college, right? Hasn't got a college education. And that's the group of people that's always kind of ever present in my mind, Matt. I I, I have honed in on that statistic as the one that I think is going to be so crucial in these next three or four years is are those people getting jobs? Are their wages going up? And if they're if they're succeeding, then we're all succeeding. But right now they're obviously the, you know, many of them are the frontline workers uh around the country. And I'm reminded at the end of, you know, the the Trump campaign, when he was rising at the very end, he got COVID. It could have been a very, you know, he, he turned into a weird person uh, after he got COVID. Well, I guess he was always a weird person, but uh, he, <laughs> he went particularly nutty after he got COVID. And But I thought what happened over the next two, three weeks, Matt, he leaned into kind of a working class message. He said, listen, I got COVID. I'm the president of the United States. I could sit back here in the White House, but I'm going to get back out there on the trail. Obviously, force people into very dangerous settings and rallies, many people getting sick. And that's a whole different matter. He didn't give a damn about them. But but he's like, at least I'm going to send the project this message that I'm getting right back out there because I know you have to go to work. I'm going back to work. And, and there's a hustle to that that I think reflected what he was trying to convey. Uh, and I think for some people on uh, on the left, I don't want to be too categorical about it. It may may not always see that class based message and lens. What what's he trying to signal there? That hey, you're suffering and you you have to get back out there. I'm going to get back. There. I'm going to show that too. And you know, I think there was a little bit of the, uh, obviously a lot of theater to it, but there's something to reflect on there. The other elements about Trump, just I and mean, we were kind of 
tangent here, but like every day he wakes up, you know, wanting to beat up somebody. Lily, oh, I'm going to fire the defense secretary. I'm going after the postman. I'm going after Amazon, Bezos, Washington Post, whatever it might be. He's got somebody who he's fighting against. I think that's an important lesson for us too. I mean, when, when particularly when people are suffering out there, they, they, they kind of want to know, who, who, do you see a struggle? Is there a right. struggle or, or are you just comfortable? Because if you see a struggle, then at least you, you, you know my life, which is a struggle. And then the other element is like, you know, obviously Trump would always talk about winning. Oh, I'm winning. You know, we're going to win so much, you're going to get sick and tired of winning. And I think that projecting a little bit that, hey, I'm fighting, I'm, I'm in your struggle and good things are happening. Some lessons to take away there. I mean, I, I think, you know, what you're saying there about, about struggle is important. I mean, there's a big divide if you look at like general social survey research and things in terms of how zero sum people see the, the world as, right? And more educated people tend to see a more like benign world in it's which complicated, it's right? in which it's like, <laughs> well, and, you know, and like there's no trade-off between X and Y, and you know, like we can all be better. And I frankly like agree with that mostly. Like I think that that is true and correct. But it is also true that in politics, like nothing is like purely win-win. And you do have to count the numbers. And it's just the vast majority of people are working class people who have a tendency to see the world in terms of conflict. And so then they want, if you assume that everyone is engaged in a conflict all the time and you tell them, oh, no, 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 like it's all fine, right? Like the suspicion is going to be that you're trying to get one over on them. Yes, and if you don't, and, if you don't say who you're against, yes, you're not saying who you're for. Yes, but I, I'm I'm just adding, and I know you're saying this too, but I, I'm just adding that their life is really the kind of laboratory of the actual struggle. That it, it, we talk about it, we write papers on it, we we think about. But when you tell you prescription drug companies are screwing you over, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know who's feeling it the most? The mm-hmm. person who's trying to buy insulin on like making eight dollars an hour. Right. Like that is real. That is very painful. But if you're making, you know, obviously, if you're, you know, a well to do person, yeah, it's frustrating to pay that much for insulin. But hey, I can do it. Right. Like, so my, my point on this is that they, there's a real lived experience with the actual struggle of, you know, whether it is a health insurance company, a ph- pharmaceutical company, a bank uh, charging, a credit card company charging inc- incredible uh, interest rates. There's that understanding that that impact for them is painful and that you have to address it and 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 say it's first obviously say i see it i understand it i recognize it now i've got a solution that is ambitious enough to address that root injustice and it isn't just like oh let me let me tweak this thing here let me institute a hard cap on your credit card interest rate how about that mm-hmm. You know, that's where you get populist about it. Hard cap and interesting. This is great. I've actually just been starting work on a piece about this idea because, I mean, I've seen some some solid research that this is like it's one of the most popular ideas that you can name is a is a sort of a tough, um, strict regulation of, of interest rates. And, you know, it's interesting because I hear a lot of the time from uh, sort of more moderate members of Congress who I think raise like legitimate concerns that people on the left don't always pay enough attention to whether their ideas have popular support or not. But it's also true that when you look at which ideas do have popular support, they are also often ideas that are a little bit out there in terms of what the kind of, I don't know, like DC revolving door class would be comfortable 
embracing, right? And so this idea of just really saying, you know, you can't charge over a certain amount, whole categories of businesses in the payday lending are probably just not going to be able to exist with reasonable interest rate regulations, but everyone's going to get a better deal on their credit cards. And frankly, we might just be better off without people getting super high interest loans. Like it, uh, it yes. might go away, but like that would <laughs> just be better. Like they, credit card companies are doing quite well. So let me get into, you know, Joe Manchin, Chris Sinema and others in our, the democratic party who are obviously in a different philosophical camp. I recognize and appreciate that their politics might be difficult or they want to have a different foreign politics of issues that need to speak to West Virginians. But the challenge that I have with them is that when we on the progressive side will then offer really popular ideas, uh, direct payments, minimum wage at $15 an hour, capping credit card rates, taking on pharmaceutical companies with bulk negotiation or, or international price indexing. How about you know uh, expanding Medicare down to 55 or 60? Those are all incredibly popular in a place like West Virginia, Arizona, wh- wherever you want to go uh, in conservative country. And when we offer it, there's hesitation. There's this concern. Oh, no, well, I can't do that. Well, I get that you have politics, but you're not assessing your own politics. Why are you not for popular issues? And in my mind, and you know, Matt, it breaks down on taking on corporate power, taking on powerful interests already in the system. And part of their analysis is that if I'm going to take on, you know, hard cap on credit card companies, there will be a brouhaha over it for damn sure. And that kind of attack on me from lobbyists and uh, ads in various papers is not something I'm ready and willing to sustain. And you know, I'm like, that, that's, that's it. That's the struggle. That's what we're after. Yes, you should fight that fight. I mean, it's also, I mean, I, I don't quite know how to put that. I don't know. I'll, 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 be, I'll be mean about it. Um, I feel like a lot of times the incentive to actually win and govern is like not quite strong enough for the people who are in the most vulnerable seats. Like the people who have the safe seats, right? A, they don't worry about losing. But then B, like they worry a lot about like, well, what's my long-term trajectory, right? Which committees do I chair? How do I position myself for a statewide run? Something like that. Uh, but the people in the more precarious seats assume that they're going to lose. Right. And then the question is, well, what relationships did I build? during my time here. And so if you can, as a moderate member, be somebody who helped out some of the lobbies who, who restrained, you know, it's not, it's not just, okay, well, I need to be careful about my politics because my district is tough, but it's also, I need to be careful about what's my next job because my district is tough, right? Like you can't count on holding the seat. You're nailing, I think, a political element that's really important here is that if you're from a quote-unquote, you know, what what do we call these purple um, seats, that there's a desire not to rock the boat too much. And I'm like, you know, so they'll hear you. This is my frustration on Matt is like, they'll hear you on, yeah, minimum wage, student loan. You're right. Those things really resonate. Student loan does resonate. So my solution is, how about we do a little tweak that gives me the ability to say, I did something when I went to Washington. I voted for something 
and it's almost disregarding, did it have any meaningful impact mm-hmm. on people's lives in your district? Well, I, I just needed to, A, not rock the boat, not kind of pick a fight with very powerful interests, and then just say I delivered something. So even you look at this minimum wage debate, it's like, could we get to something that's like $10, $11? Like, what, what are you talking about? Why, why would you go to 11 when you could go to 15 and actually have a meaningful, bold thing to take back to your constituents that, I fought for, I delivered, that Republicans would not have delivered, that our philosophy, our vision delivered in a meaningful way. And there's a hesitancy there. It's almost like, let's hew closest to what a Republican might say, and that that might be the most comfortable way, because that will mean that we're most bipartisan, quote unquote, and least rocking the boat with powerful corporate interests. But I think, well, here, I'm going to take another break, and then then I want to ask some, some of the tougher questions along these lines. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. So it seems to me that, you know, when I look at the the historical uh, Bernie Sanders, that part of his vision of a kind of class politics that really took on corporate interests was that he wanted to downplay certain other kinds of arguments, right? That, you know, when when Hillary was criticizing him for not being sufficiently gung-ho about uh, gun regulation back in the 2016 campaign, I think like one of the things he said at one point was that, I mean, it was some version of like, if we are going to take on the billionaires and corporate control of the political system, like I can't be having a huge argument about people's hobby gun ownership. To me, that was like a hard thing to hear, but I've actually come to appreciate the logic of it to some extent that like, you can't be for everything if you want to say, like, this is the point that I'm making. Like, if the problem with America is that the top 1% is capturing all the gains of economic growth, you kind of got to cut people like some slack on other subjects, it seems to me. Yeah, and and especially when you employ a working class lens, Matt, and you think about here's a hundred plus million people, you know, 150, 200 million people who are all suffering from one particular fundamental problem that you don't believe is being addressed at all 
in politics. It doesn't have any attention to it, you know, and, and the deck is so stacked against us that, you know, and whether it's media or elite, you know, policymaking papers, think tanks, industries all across the board, there is just on the status quo we're on, it will not be resolved. It will just fundamentally be stacked against you for eons to come. Then you say, hey, it is really critical that I, in, in many ways, Bernie Sanders an iconoclast. We all know that within the Democratic Party. He's kind of stands alone as like really kind of been uh, very comfortable being a trendsetter in his own right, whether he's wearing mittens or doing whatever he might be doing. He's like, I'm going to be my own person. And in being his own person, you talk about democratic socialism, right? Well, you know, why do you even embrace the term? Because he's really more like, as you know, more like a European social democrat more than anything. But like, what what was that all about? Well, it's a fight over kind of a historical lineage of our MLK, um, you know, Eugene Debs and, you know, people who had in his mind been associated with class fights. Who understood? And so it wasn't like, if I'm going to be a Democrat, I don't want to be like a traditional Democrat. I want to suggest that I'm a very different kind of Democrat who fights and understands the social um, class lens. And that, that, that has been the mark of his lifetime. So you could fault him for whatever, but for 40 years, this is what he has been trying to inject into the discourse and say, hey, people, there's this class warfare going on in this country where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And I need to make sure that you all understand that if we have solutions to it. So, right, if you're looking for a warrior on maybe some some of the other elements, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to de- deceive you about who I am. I'm, I see this fundamental problem and I'm asking you to focus on it because it afflicts hundreds of millions of people and we need to do something about it. And, you know, you said there, like, you could fault him on it, but, and I actually think that's really important because, like, like, you really could, right? Like, it's a, it's a question of making choices, right? right. And that, like, there's a, a theory that you should, in an unapologetic way, try to draw conversations back to class questions like not to say that there's no racism or that women don't face unique challenges right but to when people come to you with problems see if you can you can reframe it see if you can pull out the economic dimension the sort of you know the the many against the few element to it and not everybody likes you know like you you take heat for it there are many people who want to hear the, the opposite, right? Instead of, instead of lumping, splitting and saying, here is our solution for the unique problems of LGBT women of Muslim origin. Right. right? That like, you know, it's like, that's a different way of, of framing it, but people find that like affirming that they are seen as individuals at this complex intersection of identities. And I think that in, um, educated spaces, especially like that's increasingly how we're taught that you should address people in a respectful way and that you're not doing politics correctly. If you kind of sweep it all under the rug and be like, well, if we're incomes, we're all 25% higher. This would be easier. Right. Well, I, yes. But I mean, to be, to be clear about Bernie's policies and I said, as if he, he's, he's supportive of all of the general progressive aims, whether you're talking about guns or immigration or criminal justice reform, all those things he's, he's generally for it. But the, the, the thing is that he, he, often sees, and I think a right concern, that some of the social fights that we're engaged in don't always neatly break down on this class warfare fight, that, that we basically lose some of the class fight that is fundamental. Because you'll see a J- Jamie Dimon taking a knee for Black Lives Matter. Or you, you know, you'll see, you know, wealthy Facebook executives be for comprehensive immigration reform that might benefit, you know, their bottom lines. And that's, that's all good, right? He understands that, great, I, I'm for all those things too. However, we still have a fight with Jamie Dimon and we still have a fight 
with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. And what he worries about, rightly, is that like we dissipate, we lose the the kind of uh, singular focus on the biggest problems afflicting millions and millions of people to give them the olive branch of saying something that they're quote unquote progressive on. And you see this now with Amazon, right? Oh, I'm worth $15 minimum wage. Like the hell with that, right? Let's talk about your worker condition. Let's talk about you union busting and let's get into this because I'm not going to give you the credit that you so desperately seek of saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I was great on vote by mail during the 2020 election. I really, we really, Amazon supported vote by mail. Oh yeah. What happens when you, when union members want to vote by mail? Oh, no, no, that's a, that's a different problem. So I think that what he sees is a concern that when you look through at society through this class-based lens, are you, you know, kind of giving essentially maybe too much credit to people who are doing well and not seeing the fight over where they are really hurting uh, American society? Well, and I mean, it is a different diagnosis, though, right, of like, what is, say, the racial justice problem in the United States, right? Is it that Amazon needs to have a more diverse board of directors? Or is it that the workforce in the warehouses is it's it's not that there's no white people in the warehouses, but that like we know lower wage people, lower income people are disproportionately people of color and vice versa. There are so many more black and Latino people who might right. plausibly get a job at an Amazon warehouse than who might plausibly get a board seat at That's Amazon. Right. Right. Well, it, but it's both and Matt. Like, right. If you were in Amazon seat, you could say, hey, can I solve this problem by finding a person of color to sit on my board and uh, mollify everybody? Will that be some, uh, enough? And obviously the fight here is like, no, absolutely not. And if, if we were to take one of them, it, you know, it, I, it, it shouldn't be right. A case of either or if I was going to take one. I'm fighting for the workers and I want that seat on the board. I want the union fight because that's 85% black led movement down there in Alabama, Amazon warehouse that I will take absolutely because it will have the most impact on people's lives. And it doesn't, it doesn't cost Jeff Bezos really anything to like double down on diversity initiatives, right? right? Like that's, that's easy, right? For, for him, whereas to give up some control over the enterprise to the people who work there is really tough. Like that's, I, I mean, business leaders who have some progressive instincts, you know, by far the hardest thing to challenge them on is unions and labor relations because they care about money, right? right? But they care even more than they care about money. They care about control, control. right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like this layer cake. It's like a diversity ask is easy. Right. A pay higher taxes ask is hard, but like a let the workers here have a seat at the table to decide like what are fair rules, what's fair pay, how are we going to do things like that is impossible. And you never see an executive, no matter who they donate to or like what tweets they make, like th they are never on board for that because that remains like the core like class dynamic, right? Correct. It's like, who is this for? Yeah, to get into it, right, Matt, I was fortunate to be a campaign manager of the first unionized presidential campaign in American history. Do you know how that union came about? Do you think that there was a fight at the NLRB to hold a vote? No, it was 
I voluntarily recognize that you just say, hey, and we, we that's like not even part of the lexicon anymore, Matt. You would, there was no suggestion that Amazon or Zuckerberg or, you know, uh, the Google executives would just voluntarily recognize you, which they could certainly do. No, they're fighting the tooth and nail. And there's something to be said about the the ethic of the country. What is happening to the value system uh, of America? What are we worried about? The hyper-individualism that leads to the hyper-greed of that complete control that I get to set the terms and conditions that because I am powerful, I am CEO, I have uh, more money influence, society has deemed me to be the most important. And Instead, what we've lost as a result is a solidarity ethic that we are somehow all tied in this together. Obviously, COVID reveals that more than anything, probably in recent history, that our fates are as, are all interlinked and we're all as safe as the undocumented person who's delivering food to us or making our food for us, right? And and I think hopefully that's one of the things we take away out of COVID is that rebuilding a solidarity ethic of understanding our fates are interlinked, which quite frankly, I feel like maybe you felt more strongly in other countries than even here. A hyper-capitalism, a free market capitalism, a rewarding of uh, of the rich has led to a value system in which we believe that they're smarter, they deserve more, they get more power and authority, their, their opinion matters a hell of a lot more. And that's just not true. But it has kind of started to it kind of become the consciousness uh, almost subtly, even, with, even when you and I can talk about it, that, hey, yeah, that, that's ridiculous. We don't believe that. But yet you're almost accepting it on a daily basis in the choices that you're making and, and, and who you basically deemed to be you know, smart and, and whose wisdom you heed. So, I mean, I, I want to ask you about this from a sort of media lens since you have you've played in that world and, and are again now. You know, it seems to me that in sort of progressive spaces, I guess uh, we would call them that like people have both embraced more kind of left wing ideas than, you know, we saw 10, 15 years ago, but that there has been, if anything, like a move away from sort of class politics issues and more identity focus than, you know, than we saw in our Think Progress days, frankly, that like now, like any think tank PDF um, would like really highlight, you know, like how, how does this do racial disparities, things like that, right? It would be considered very, almost like outrageous to be like, white people will benefit from my proposal, um, even though like that's like that's the majority of the voters, certainly the majority of the voters in West Virginia um, or, or wherever it is you're, you're trying to win on the margins. Um, and it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like it's been a fairly, a, a kind of counterproductive trend, even as some good things have happened from like a real focus on, on racial justice, but that to move things in a tangible way, like you need to move these economic levers and to move the economic levers you have to be able to talk i think in an inclusive way about like what are we doing with minimum wage or, or with unions or with healthcare provision and not just in a sort of like appealing to narrow groups way yeah i i, I agree a lot with what you're saying i was a couple comments on it one is yeah. that donald trump obviously has a lot to do with the kind of explosion around uh, identity. I mean, he was provoking it daily, right? And, and there's a reason why people increasingly feel like, hey, based on my identity, whether it's Muslim, Black, uh, Latino, that I am, have been identified by him and legions of people who support him as uh, the problem uh, in society, that 
they want we all of us want to be seen, understood, and respected as not the the problem, but rather a part of a solution. Just basic decency and respect. So that's all right. the The challenge, I think, the second comment is around when you're proposing these very popular ideas. It is undoubtedly the case that when you're trying to lift all boats, particularly from the bottom up. Any policy, Medicare for all, minimum wage, you know, taking on prescription drug companies, student debt cancellation, they all tend to overwhelmingly benefit minorities, people of color, and do 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 the a lot of the wealth gap closing that we would like to see of, of more equity in society. And so my frustration sometimes is that at the kind of overfocus on identity will lose the what could be a solidarity around an agenda item that would do a hell of a lot to lift minorities, people of color out of their circumstances. So what I would love to see is making sure that as we identify, you know, a fight around um, identity, that it's wrapped in together with a fight against a credit card industry that is screwing people of color, that it's, that those are interlinked in a way that sometimes I feel like has not always been the case. It's like, well, those are, those are two, two separate conversations. If you, it's sometimes in some quarters, if you introduce like a class-based fight, it, that is very populist, that has so much impact and influence, you sometimes get criticized for, is it doing enough for a particular group? And I'm like, it, well, it's, it's doing enough for that group and many other people. It's a wonderful thing, right? If we can, we can do, do a lot for Asians and do a lot for Pakistanis like myself, uh, but it, th- that is the solidarity ethic, right? Is to say all of our fates are interlinked. So if I'm going to hold that as a value and, and articulate and advocate for it, then I have to be consistent about it, right? It's solidarity. We are all lifting together. And when we do that, uh, quite frankly, we'll. Ad- I think we do. We do address the fact that there is a disparity, often racial disparity, that will be addressed in the terms in, in those solutions. And I think already we're seeing in the Biden, you know, in the early going, this emphasis on class is seen in some of his policies. Right, you do see that. Obviously, a, a direct payments is a very good example. But like, you even get into like the dis- dissemination of like. Um, some of the funding um, for farmers and schools, mm-hmm. it, it's it's taken in, into account that there is a class lens. We got to lift from the bottom up, even small businesses, et cetera. And when you do that, I, I hope everyone will appreciate that you actually are addressing um, the identity gaps in our society. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, obviously such a classic aspect of American politics, right, was conservative people using racism frankly, to, to divide. break down solidarity, right? And, yeah. you know, divide and conquer, so right. to speak, right? To which, like, the answer, like, the Martin Luther King answer was not like, well, we've then further divide, right? Right, But right. was ultimately that, like, we challenge you to say, stop, like, cutting off your nose to, like, stick it to the other guy, right? That, I'm reminded, like, if we, Matt, as you say yeah. that, that Mitch McConnell in just the last couple of days. I mean, what do you think he's doing when he's fighting against corporate influence and in politics because he's so upset at Delta and Coca-Cola <laughs> and Major League Baseball? He's not actually upset with them. He's trying to institute a division, right, and say, hey, they care about Black people, right. too don't care about them. We shouldn't let the corporations start to care about them because you white people are going to lose out, right? He's trying to suggest that. And in fact, there's actually class solidarity being built here as a result that if you see this not as like them coming to support of 
black people that Coca-Cola is standing up for that, but rather that they're standing up for basic voting rights protections for all of us that we all benefit from. There's one way to see that, which we all do, I think, on the, at least those listening to this podcast, right. Whereas versus what Mitch McConnell is trying to introduce, Lily provoked uh, in an intentional way. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And it's, and it's different from an ethic of like, treat these things as, as totally separate questions, right? I mean, I, you sometimes, Democrats will be like, oh, okay, we need some, some non-college white votes. We better have an economic program. And then it's like, oh, I want some Latina votes. So let's right. say something about Latina issues, but like Latinas have economic interests. <laughs> like everybody does, right? It's not like only white people have an economy. I, that they I'm so in. glad you said this because. Obviously, one thing people I think do know about Bernie Sanders' campaign is we have great enthusiasm around the country, particularly about young people and have changed the future of the Democratic Party. But Latinos were a huge base of support for us. And when you when we did all of our polling and organizing around them and asked, you know, where where they were, you know what the issues were that, that, that they love Bernie Sanders around? They were basic economic justice and healthcare issues. And I think in my mind, one of the reasons for that too is there's the values attached to it. There's an ethic of why, why Bernie Sanders fights on these. There's a moralism around it. That there's a just society here. And, and many, for many immigrants who also came to America with that vision in mind, this land of opportunity would deliver on this. And then if they see, oh, yeah, I'm getting here, I'm getting screwed uh, by these very powerful actors who are trying to cut me out from society, that, that, that will resonate with them. And I think there's a lesson to take away. It wasn't, it was if we went to them and say, hey, you know, specifically on this provision of immigration reform. Yeah, we talk about comprehensive immigration reform and various elements of it that would benefit Latinos, but really the things that resonated very strongly with them were the economic justice and healthcare issues. And that was seen all in polling in every state that we did around Latinos. Yeah, and I always thought, you know, that it was almost like, if I looked at the the 2012 cycle, um, especially that it was like um, Latino voters were voting the way Democrats wished white voters would vote, which is to say, like, primarily focusing on their economic yeah. interests right. and, like, not hyper-focused on uh, different kinds of, of cultural considerations. And then Democratic campaigns started, like, like overshooting, you know, on, like... Segmentation. We love, we love Latinos yes. so much. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you know, so I thought... Um, uh, Chuck Rocha, you know, his call to like hire more Latino people to do this work and stuff, you know, makes a lot of sense. But also I always found talking to him and, and, and reading his op-eds, you know, that like the baseline message he's talking about is a very like concrete, practical message. It's not a like theoretical argument about like the role of Hispanics in American society. It's about like schools and wages and just like regular, regular stuff. Right. And, and to um, overcomplicate it is a mistake. Yeah. And, and ultimately, obviously that's where, you know, if you, if you see it, you understand that you also hire accordingly. We did this, you know, in Iowa and Nevada is that, you know, if we're going to be a, a movement that is of these communities, then there should be some people who reflect those communities on the staff as well. And that sometimes means, by the way, just to get a different topic of how you hire, the resume isn't everything. And so if, if they haven't worked on, you know, three prior presidentials or two prior congressionals, then you might have to take a, a flyer and, and hope that, you know, somebody coming out of Starbucks Bucks is that, you know, because they are just care deeply about Bernie Sanders, we're going to help train and get them to a place where, you know, they, they can be a valuable contributor. But we would preference those types of people coming from those communities and those working class backgrounds over somebody who generally just had, you know, experience in democratic politics. That's really interesting. Getting people from sort of out of the, the general cycle. 
Yeah, and preferencing, quite frankly, a passion for the cause. I mean, that, that's at the, at the end of the day, it was like, you know, that's, that's burning, you know, to the T, right? It's like, if you see the class-based fight, if you see the, you know, with that economic justice lens, if you feel it in your bones, in your heart, if you've lived it, you're probably going to be a pretty good messenger for it too. And that was the, that was the you know, the theory of the hiring. And we go, one of my favorite things I did on the campaign, I go around and meet with all the field organizers in Iowa and New Hampshire and elsewhere and just get around a room and I'll have everybody come in one meeting and we'll go around and ask people their stories. It would bring you to tears, Matt. I mean, people like, my, my, my father was homeless, you know, my mother died of cancer and couldn't afford, you know, prescription drugs that she needed. You get it, student debt is crushing me. I mean, you literally get it, it real lived experience, like with color detail and, and you get by the end of it, you get to the last person. You're like, well, now we all know why we're here, don't we? You know, and it, it was a powerful thing. So what's what's next for More Perfect Union? Uh, right now, it's it's videos basically on a on a few issues. Um, it's where, media content. It it, there's an emphasis on media on video storytelling for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays you you, you know well met in this media landscape. We'd love to believe is, is that the fact, where the Zoomers are. <laughs> we'd love to believe the fact sheets matter, but like <laughs> this is one thing that I, I took away from our friends at the Retail Workers Union. Actually, quite frankly, down there in Alabama, is they said you know we've been pushing around these fact sheets for months to our workers, trying to get them excited and you guys come along and you push your first video first two videos they go viral and all of our workers are suddenly talking about it excited and sharing it with one another and i was like there's something to the power of video and how it's mm-hmm. it consumed and how it becomes a messenger in this age particularly instagram and tiktok and you know twitter and all social media being what it is it preferences i think people are, are often sharing and watching you know videos online youtube's growth is, is a testament to it um so you know, we want to definitely, you know, you and I work together, Think Progress. If we were relaunching Think Progress in this day and age, what would it be? Well, it would be a version of like emphasizing, I think, video storytelling, particularly because it's the gap that I think exists in the, in the space of just getting out there, spreading your tentacles, trying to get the direct story from people on the ground. If we can invest and do it in a way that's cost efficient, right? I, I think uh, hopefully build something that's additive and val- uh, value add to this space. Well, and it's like video is, is, um, is mass persuasion, right? Yes. I mean, in any era, right? If you're thinking, okay, it's 1974. I mean, people talk a lot in media space about the decline of local newspapers. And I, like, obviously that's important. That's an important trend in society. But it's like, what really mattered back then was like Walter Cronkite, right? right. Like the largest audience is for watching videos, which today probably means YouTube or, or TikTok clicks, and certainly if you're talking about younger people or you're talking about building for the for the future, which is different from a game of like uh, fancy people passing memos to each other to to try to convey like writing's great because it's very information yes. dense. Like if right. you are super duper interested in the topic, like reading a piece of paper conveys the most information. Yes. But if you're trying to engage people who have a lot of other interests and be like, hey, this is important, right? Like videos, how how you get them. It's funny because I've, I've been having this same conversation in a different uh, format, which is polling in this day and age. I'm like, you know, polling is like struggling in general, right? I mean, uh, it's clear that it, it, it's in a, it, the industry is struggling. Um, one of my thoughts on it is we've become so reliant on long paragraphs, having people read them. Do you agree with you disagree and you go through 20 minutes of this and like I'm like what what about just a short graphic or a video or so you know 10 second video and then ask people do you agree or disagree i actually think that that'd be a much more compelling version of doing a poll in this day and age than you know that than some of those old school like long paragraphs 
Uh, all right, Fashik here. Uh, this is really great. Uh, but before you go, I, I do like to ask people, you know, if there's, there's something I missed, a, a question you you wish I'd asked you, last words uh, for, for the Weeds audience. Uh, we've been covering a lot of ground here, but, you know, whatever whatever well, your last points yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back at you, Matt. I, I didn't yeah. get a good chance to um, ask you this. Uh, if I understand you correctly, you, you basically were a strong supporter of Bernie in this last run. That wasn't always the case for maybe four or five years prior. Take a moment, explain for your for our, our own audience collectively, what was that? That arc about and, and and detail that one for me. I mean, I thought that I don't agree with Bernie's approach to to, to everything, uh, particularly on the level of like nitpicky journalism, uh, in which I'm trying to convey like exactly what I think is true uh, about the wage structure in the United States. But I really believe that trying to lean against, I think that the media defaults to treating concrete questions of material interest as boring and wants to elevate feelings of fairly elite people about our own interest status battles. And I think that Bernie tries really hard to lean against that. And to say that the most important thing in politics is that the government allocates material resources in really important ways, Um, not that the government validates certain people's self-esteem or sense of who is and isn't important and valued. And I mean, I think that that approach to politics is much more constructive frankly, than one that is about, you know, who are we centering and who is really valued and and things like that. And just to me like that, that is the most important through line in like successful politics in the United States is trying to work within the context of a very diverse society in which, you know, people need to all be respected and have their rights respected and, and taken seriously, but also to understand that like, the government sets the tax rates and it allocates billions of dollars in direct spending. It does all these regulations that matter incredibly for people's lives. And it is such a, um, it's such a constant uphill battle to get media attention, to focus on something like that. You see, even what's happening now with the jobs plan, right? There's this incredible fascination with the metaphysics of should the care work count as infrastructure? Right. Like that's something that like media people are really into because it's about what do words mean? And it's about the like relative value of like different kinds of words. Right. And like how it goes. And you could write a really good term paper about like the gendering of the concept of infrastructure versus care and blah, blah, blah. And what people are not that invested in is like, I want to write an article that explains what the consequences for your life would be of this elder care proposal, right? Or conversely, that explains what the consequences for people's stock market returns of the global corporate minimum tax are, right? And that like the reason that there is opposition to this proposal, it's it's like there's a million things you could say about it, but like what animates opposition to it is that people don't want to pay the higher corporate tax rate. And so that is going to mobilize opposition. So they're going to find fault with the spending proposals. But then we can look like, who do they help, right? Like, is it is it good or is it bad? And the press is like not fundamentally interested in that kind of question. 
It's become a conditioning. I agree with that. And and that was one of the biggest things that we were up against is um, when you're when you're talking about, you know, outside the box ideas and, and a perspective, a working class lens, you know, it's not shared. And so you're constantly fighting uphill on it with, quite frankly, uh, audiences that are part of the problem. They, they live in a little bubble. I remember having this conversation with Brian Stelter on CNN, which it was a good natured conversation, basically like, the pharmaceutical companies are advertising on CNN. Does it, do I believe that because you are in their pocket or you're saying what they want? You say, no, it's more the conditioning that you know the bounds of what will be acceptable and what will, quote unquote, be unacceptable, right? That's the challenge. You know that when you're going to say something that might upset the bosses and the corporate masters, you, you almost become a condition to it. And as a result, I think that, that that shades a lot of ways in which you know people think about stories is that because you've become conditioned to knowing the guards of what is going to provoke. Is Amazon still going to pay for political playbook if we go in this very aggressive direction? I don't know, but I know I'll probably get a call and I'll be able to be pretty angry about it. So I think that that's very important. And I appreciate your your comments on where Bernie is. I thought one of the most fundamental you know statements that we made during the campaign he made at the Queensbridge rally with AOC was, are you willing to fight for someone you don't know? And that, that still remains the central question uh, of, of, I think, our time and our ethic and our value system. All right, fantastic. Well, I hope if you are listening, you will share this podcast uh, with someone who you do know, because uh, people, people you don't know probably don't care which podcast you recommend. Um, although you can always rate us on, on Apple and elsewhere. Um, thank you so much, Fesh Shakir, uh, for joining us. Uh, check out uh, more Perfect Union. Uh, what, the, the website there is perfectunion.us uh, if you want to see. Plus, the, the videos are spreading everywhere uh, virally. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, who, as Faz was saying, dictate the content of all of our coverage. Um, and as always, our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.